Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm delighted to be here with Olivia Frico for the first time. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you. And we have a very special guest, uh, someone who I have been book buddy with for the last year. It's been wonderful. We've been touring, uh, touring Australia together. Felicity McLean, who's finally, finally got a published finally. book in her hand, the finished copy of Van Apple Girls Are Gone. Welcome, Felicity. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's been it's, for me. It's been a long journey, but no, you know, for the I've got to keep going. The public uh, is, is this is all new. This is all brand new to the public, and I want to hear all the stories that um, that you've told because I've heard some really good stories behind this book and and tiny little audiences that we go around to, you know, to sort of seeding books behind the behind the scenes with booksellers and the, and the like. Can you tell us how? I mean, I love the story of how this um, book came about. Can you tell us a little bit about how a uh, a, a famed you know, to be a famed ghostwriter. Yeah. <laughs> visible ghostwriter. Yeah, visible ghostwriter. Um, be, uh, became a novelist. Sure, sure. Yeah, I did think actually I should come up with some new material before I came in today because we have done a few events now together. So you have heard some of my stories, but it's new to everybody else. I'd leave the room if you want. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you when you can come back in. Yes, yeah. um, yeah, so this, the Van Apfel Girls Are Gone came about uh, several years ago. I was. On a panel at Sydney Writers Festival in 2016, I was on a panel um, of emerging writers and we were doing this fabulous event at the Brian Brown Theatre, which is out at Bankstown, and Brian Brown was hosting the event that night and the event was on the theme of creativity and place. So how does geography affect your creative process? How does the landscape of your childhood affect what you write? which is a really interesting topic, except, of course, unless you're a ghostwriter, as I was at the time. Um, And then it becomes a bit more tricky because necessarily when you're a ghostwriter, your own sense of self and sense of place doesn't make it anywhere near the page, which is how I found myself standing up in this theatre full of people there for the Sydney Writers' Festival, a couple of hundred people in this theatre, reading aloud from the only thing I could find, which was this scrap of a novel that I'd started thinking about. Um, And so I read aloud this passage from the novel, which was very loosely inspired by the geography of my childhood, and sat down and thought I had survived the panel. But, of course, then it was question time, and the first person on their feet was this tall character in the very front row, and he wanted to know more about my novel. Where did the idea come from? What was it called? What happened next? And I said, that's a really good question. Thanks, Brian Brown, for your question. (laughs) And so, of course, I got to work on the novel after that because I thought, look, if Brian Brown wants to know, if he's intrigued, then really I should sit down and write it. Um, And I have been in touch with Brian since and he has been super encouraging and super lovely. In fact, he got in touch just this week to say that he's reading it at the moment and very much enjoying it. So we have Brian Brown to thank for the van up for Girls Are Gone. Um, you're a busy writer. Like you, you work as a writer as a, uh, for a living. Um, and so this, this extra writing, how do, you, how do you balance that? And how does it, how does it feel? Like, because you get home from work, oh, I've been writing all day. Let's write some more as, as a pleasure or as part of my, 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 my art. How, how do you balance that? Because it can uh, surely writing can get a little bit tedious if you're doing it for other people. Yeah, it's funny. It's a completely different thing. When I decided that I was actually going to properly make a start on this book and try and write it, uh, the only time I could find, because as you say, I do work as a ghostwriter and a journalist, so I have a day job writing, even though that day job is at home, so I can choose my own hours. 
but the only time I could carve out was between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. So I would get up in the morning and work on my novel between 5 and 7. And I'm not naturally a morning person. That, that's not my idea of fun, really. Um, I'd do it fueled by coffee. And I often it would be 7 a.m. before I'd properly woken up. So I would go back over my writing and think, when did I write that? That's uh, who, who came up with that idea? That's intriguing. So I think I was probably half asleep for the first half of that session. But yeah, Van Apfel Gozagon initially was written between 5am and 7am. And then I would do my other writing for the day. Interesting you say that because it is a very dreamy read in a way. Like when you're reading it, it feels like like it's an actual probably you was dreamy. I was half yeah, asleep. Like memory you've had as a kid. Because so, just the characters in it like... Like you feel like they're people that you've known as a child yourself. For me, anyway. I'm glad you yeah. say it was a dream you read. That was very much what I was trying to capture. Was that you know that wonderful dreaminess and eeriness of books like Picnic at Hanging Rock and mm. The Virgin Suicides? That really haunting quality. I wanted to sort of bottle that, you know, Peter Wee's Pan Pipes that effect. So that's what I was aiming for. So I'm glad you thought it was dreamy. Um, we have a few um, shower girls uh, in in the office, uh, and you said in just as you were talking about with standing in front of Brian Brown um, that it was loosely based on the area you grew, grew up. Yet some of these uh, locals have been pointing out actual places that are in the book, <laughs> right? So you're loosely um, <laughs> in your dream state. Yes, you, yes, you my managed, dreamscape. Yeah, your dreamscape uh, actually found some some shire um, localities. Uh, do you have you gone around? the area of your of your youth um, to have a look at just how much fell in? That's really interesting. Um, so I did. I was brought up in Sydney on Darawal land and there I, it, it is loosely based on geography because I've really cherry-picked. Um, it could be any suburb in Australia. You know those wonderful suburbs where it's all neat and it's rows and houses and schools and churches and then you walk through somebody's backyard and there's no back fence and you just keep going and suddenly you're in thick bush, proper bush. I love that about Australia. Like we're all kind of living on this periphery, this fringe. We pretend it's all urban and, you know, it, it, it's loose. It's really loose. So, yes, I loved that and I wanted to capture that sense of ordinary suburban, the wonderfulness of really ordinary suburban childhood. Um, so, yeah, and I did grow up in one of those houses where you'd walk out the back and we walked across the fire trail and then there was, a, you know, maybe 25, 30 metres of scrub. Then we had this enormous valley, like I'm talking 200-metre drop valley down to the river. And because it was the 90s, our parents would say to us, go outside and play. You're Nobody describing ever... my exact childhood. And it was so wonderful. Nobody said, like, don't fall off the cliff because if you <laughs> fell off the cliff, you're a bloody idiot. Pretty now, much. now we wouldn't let our children wander around in these sorts of environments. But it was what a great place to play. Like, mm-hmm. go and build a cubby or yeah. find a cave or do something, you know, ridiculous down in the bush. And it was mm-hmm. great. So, yeah, it was, it's that sort of geography. It really could be any suburban bush. Can you sketch out um, a bit of the story for us? Because it's a story that, that it kind of has, um, it loops back on itself. So it doesn't really have beginning, middle, and end because it's kind of all over. Can you give us a bit of a setup? Sure, sure. So the story is narrated by Tika Malloy, who is 11 and 1 sixth, and she's a slightly precocious but ultimately unreliable narrator. Tika is telling the story of the disappearance of her three 
very good friends and neighbours, the Van Apfel girls. So Laura and Cordelia and Ruth, uh, the Van Apfel sisters, and they vanish one night from the school's outdoor showstopper concert and the concert is held in an outdoor amphitheatre by the river. And the the story that Ticker tells us is a story that's pieced together from neighbourhood gossip and innuendo and secrets that the children have held and Ticker is trying to piece together what actually happened that night. And this is framed by... Ticker returning to this community 20 years later as an adult, still unable to leave this story alone. And so we follow the story of the disappearance of the Van Apfel girls, but the other story we follow at the same time is the story of Ticker and her growth and her ultimately her story and whether or not she's able to make peace with the fact that she doesn't find out what happens to her friends. I know there's rightly magic going on here, but the the relationships between the sisters and the friends and that that group were you um, uh, as a as a child in in a group of that kind of size of, of people? Or were you a lonely child watching out the other kids doing it? What, what's, what's the backstory here? <laughs> there's a lot of rightly magic going on here because I grew up with brothers and uh, boys. I grew up with a lot of boys in the street and boy cousins, and so maybe this is uh, a writer transposing that she wished she had sisters. Um, but no, it... Bridget Clay was already taken. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, no, it's not my experience in that sense. Um, it but it's like course. it's genuine, though, because... Oh, that's nice. I did have, like, like you go with your neighbours and just disappear into the bush, and there were, like, different families, and you would kind of attach yourself to them. Yeah, so that's like, right. It's so I'm very surprised that you say that you grew up with brothers because it feels like you grew up with sisters. Oh, well, that's lovely. That's lovely. But, yeah, it, it's based on, you know, the friendships that we had as mm-hmm. kids and while there's no truth to the narrative, like that I certainly had no experience of people disappearing or anything like that, mm-hmm. there are small pockets of just little anecdotes from my own childhood or own truths or things or just stuff we used to do. Like we did have sleepovers and pool parties and that that part of it is all very, very true. And the, the relationship between um, the different age groups within the group, I just love it. I mean, it just brought back so many memories of – because I'm, I'm one of five and my right, two older yeah. sisters were always the cool kids doing yeah. the stuff and, and I was always so happy if I got included in any way. Awesome. And I could, yes. feel, I could feel that in this book. You could feel this, those tensions. Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it because – that's my era, like that. Yes. The, you know, um, I'm, I'm a bit older, but I, that's it. Very much has a, a resonance of of my childhood in, in the same way. The heat, the pools, yes. the, the exclusion, the inclusion, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the school gossip. You know, all these different things all the coming The thongs sticking to the bitumen, yeah. the leather seat. Do you remember hopping in the backseat yes, of a car oh, yeah. and you would, oh, the leather seats and then the buckle of the seatbelt? I think most of it was faux leather. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> the vinyl. Yes, yeah, the vinyl, <laughs> sticking to the vinyl seats in the car. But, yeah, the seatbelts would be blazing hot. Yeah, and all, I mean, all those things, all that physicality stuff is just because the – the locale, uh, being Australia, being suburban Australia, because you, you yeah. are, and you can see that you're trying to hide, you know, it, that it's, it's, it, it can be uh, placed in different places. Like it doesn't have to be. Yeah. It's, a, it's a common suburban summer experience yeah. you know, that you're trying to create. Uh, but you, you do it so well because, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have that spot as my uh, upbringing, but I, I know all those things that you're describing. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of um, nostalgia um, mm. if people are reading this book. Oh, good. Uh, of, of good. That period. 
And yeah. Oh, sorry. oh, I was saying, it was, I really love the contrast of like the suburbia with the kind of like semi gothic mm. um, feel of the wilderness, just like getting lost in it. I was always terrified of it. Like, I, I don't know, you guys seem to be quite cool with it, but I, I, was, I would step oh. 10 metres into real bush yeah. and it would just be like the moments in, in um, being a rock. You know, the sound. Yeah, the sound, it goes away. Like normal light disappears yes. so yes. quickly. Yeah. It only yeah. takes a few a few metres to go in. Yeah. And I was scared of running into a spiderweb then actually falling off the rock. <laughs> no, I was, I was just, I was just it, it just haunted me. Yeah. Like it, it, it still does. If I, it, you know, I'm, I'm quite cool if I'm walking with someone through the bush, but if yep. I find myself alone in the bush yep. and it's all still, ooh. Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of that kind of like focus more on the rural aspects of Australia and a lot of the fiction coming from Aussie writers right now. Like, I mean, look at Jane Harper. She made absolutely her career writing about these incredible yeah. landscapes and the stories that happen in them. So I really love seeing that. Yeah, and how great that overseas readers now are reading yes. about Australian landscapes and seeking out books like this. Mm. They're obviously getting a kick out of it, even if it's not a nostalgic kick, but they're enjoying it for other reasons. Yeah, because because all those things that I think the thing that fascinates us it's it's like it's like seeing someone looking up in the sky as you're walking down the street and you start looking up in the sky what are they looking at <laughs> that's yeah. right yes our fascination with our own uh, our con- confusion or uh, um, mm. lack of understanding of our own environment um, yep. is kind of contagious mm. in that, that sense but I mean, it's, it's a it's a boom isn't it yeah. like right now absolutely it's absolutely divine that we are conquering with fiction right around the world yeah, uh, uh, with with so many different versions of it too. It's not just it's not just the that's poem. it. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily always rural landscapes mm. or bush landscapes. It's all sorts. Yeah, Coastal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So when putting this together, um, did you have a like? Did you have a little post-it note stuck to the wall above your writing desk saying, "I'm going to really annoy all the readers," um, and I keep that up there as my goal? <laughs> because there's something you do in this book which um, is unforgivable for many people. Uh, can you explain why and why you decided to do this horrible thing to all of us? Yes, yes, I can. And this from the, sorry, let me get this straight. This from the person who did what to their character in Girl on the Page. If we can digress <laughs> for a moment. I can't. I, I don't recall. I don't recall at all. Right. Yeah. Made lots of people angry in this office alone. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so my crime in the Van App book, Are Gone, is creating an ultimately unresolved ending. So I set myself a challenge at the outset and I thought, what is it about Picnic at Hanging Rock and books like this that still capture our interest? Why are we still talking about them 50 years after they were written? You're at a dinner party and you mentioned Picnic at Hanging Rock. First of all, people around the table will think it's true, which astonishes me. And then secondly, Everybody has got a theory or an idea or a, oh, yeah, that I, you know, always think of that book or it haunts me every time I step in the bush, like you said. What is it? Why does it haunt us? So I set myself the challenge of trying to write a story that was similarly unresolved. So it, it's not giving anything away to say the Van Apfel girls are gone, does not have a neat ending. It's not all tied up in a bow. You don't find out everything necessarily that you want to know about the disappearance. Um, so I wanted to create a book that was haunting and eerie and got in people's heads, but at the same time give readers enough that they weren't throwing the book across the room. So there is very much a resolved ending in terms of Ticker's story and Ticker's narrative arc. You find out a lot about what happens to her and where she ends up. There's hopefully enough in there to satisfy readers and not just drive them crazy. I think there is. But also, I'm not the person who hates unresolved endings. 
Like, I actually love it if it's really done well. Yeah. And I don't know, if you explain too much, then it loses that sense of mystery and, and dreaminess that That's you work right. so hard to create. So, yeah. Well, that, that, that um, accusation uh, about uh, Pitney Harry Rock being true, I get the feeling that we both got the feeling this was true. Like in, that it was some sort of drawn from your past, but you've already blown that out. But you know, so as I we, should have as run we, with that, shouldn't I? Yes. Well, no, no, but I'm just <laughs> wondering. Terrible suppressed thing I'm, from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm probably one. I mean, she probably did the same. Joanna Lindsay probably did the same. Um, mm. no, did she have an original yes. ending that got scrapped by her publisher? Oh, she actually wrote an extra bit. Yes, she, she did yeah. an extra chapter, and her that editors full, very wisely that said went full supernatural, and they're like, no. yes, yes, let's leave that out. Yeah, um, but yeah, as time goes by. As they haven't got you to talk to, uh, in, in in generations to come, maybe yes. it will have the same effect. Maybe because it does feel uh, so on the ground, so physical, and there's enough there's enough points within there, and, and red herrings and different things you've got going on in in there to really build up this um, full picture mm. uh, for us. And you know, I think I read it a long time ago, and my brain kind of settles on a conclusion. Yes, and it's going to. It's probably going to solidify as that's the ending. Right, that's version. interesting. That's your version. Yeah, my version of it. My, yeah. And what I assume did happen is now in my brain, somewhere in the back there. Well, I wanted to plant enough possible scenarios. So there are some definite suspects in there that could have done something. Uh, there's the possibility that, you know, the Van Atfield girls are still out there somewhere. There's So there's plenty of possible scenarios. Um so yeah, you might be on the money. You never know. <laughs> and uh, your your um, this book is is not just confined to Australia. You're doing the the dry and the uh, Leo Moriarty thing. You're conquering the, the world with this book. It's been, <laughs> it's been sold in other countries. It has been sold elsewhere. Um, I'm off to the states in July to do some events because it's coming out in the US in July and the UK in July, and then it's being translated into French and Spanish, which. It would be hilarious. I would love to be a fly on the wall when they try and translate some of our wonderful (laughs) Australianisms into already I've had many in-depth conversations with the American publishers about technical terms such as dunny and (laughs) chook. So I can't wait to see how the French and the Spanish go with it. I think think the French will probably just do it because they're like, Mm. oh, we know everything. We'll know know how to fix this. They'll be all over it. Yeah, they'll fix this. The Italians might come up with some funny stuff. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And how does that make you feel? How's it uh, like when you're thinking about this story, this this um, scrap of paper that Brian Brown encouraged uh, to to be written? Um, now that it's going out there, and you know, because it is crossing, it's crossing cultural barriers and boundaries, um, yeah. and your your girls are going to be known mm. way beyond your reach. It's over now. This this period of you being able to know your readers, yes, is yes. done. <laughs> yes, I've handed it over. I've let go of the story now. Um, it was strange. It's already been strange for me. This was a story that existed only in my head for a long time when I was writing it. Um, nobody knew that I was writing it. It wasn't commissioned. I hadn't sold it to anybody. So the only person that knew that I was writing it was my poor husband who had to read draft after draft and <laughs> had to listen to me bang on about the Van Atfield girls. Um, but nobody else in the world knew they existed. So as soon as real people in the real world started talking to me about the characters. That was the instant that it just got weird. And now everything beyond that can't really be any stranger. <laughs> well, we're, we're holding the, the final copy, so there are no more edits. There's nothing you yes, can do. Yes, yes. It's over. <laughs> it's over. Yes, I have let it go. 
So when when was the final time that you actually like how long how many months has it been since you've actually said the publisher said there's nothing you can do now? Oh, not that long ago. I think late January, possibly even early February, we were still moving commas and fiddling with things. So yeah, it's it really didn't go to print very long ago in Australia. Did you rely largely on your memories of that time, or are there certain books or memoirs or novels that you read that? really resonated with you and, and you, you found them in your imagination as you were writing? Is there anything? No, I didn't rely largely on memory and it was very strange. I've got small kids and because so much of it is set within the school system and kids are sort of upper primary school age, um, when I did the majority of the writing, my kids weren't at school. Since then, they've, my daughters have both started school and it is frankly hilarious how much hasn't changed <laughs> since I went through the school system. I'm talking about rhymes that are used in the playground. I'm talking about words that are used in the classroom, the songs they sing in choir. So much has not changed, which is hilarious and quite nice actually. Um, even that the song I Am Australian, which just I feel like in school we got up and sang that every week and I put that in there as kind of a running gag the choir only Having ever sings that song because the only other song they know is Bound for Botany Bay and that is just not appropriate for a community in grief. Not with all those Turley realities in the chorus. So I used I Am Australian as the kind of recurring song. And then the ABC has started using it in their advertising campaigns. Yeah. <laughs> when I heard it the first time on TV, I was like, that's the song. There it is again. And so now I feel like all readers can be like ticker and be like, not that song again if they listen to the ABC at all. It was solidly stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah. Glad I did that to you. Um, what, what next for you? I mean, uh, are you are you thinking you're now uh, a novelist? I mean, the novelist thing kind of, I mean, the way you tell it, it's kind of uh, Brian, Brown, Brown, Brown made me do it. But has this been a long, <laughs> yes. a, a long gestation of I, I, I'm doing this writing because one day I will be a novelist and I'll be writing all the time and I'll be writing, knocking out books that he, he left right and centre. Did you come with that? Like, was that the reason why you got into writing in the first place or was writing something else for you? No, it was much, much less calculated and organised than that, to be frank. Um, I really fell into writing. So I was working as I was working as a freelance journalist and I was approached to be a ghostwriter or to ghostwrite a book and that's how I fell into ghostwriting because I did a book for a contact that was a publisher and that was great fun and then I got asked to do a few more and then I had six books under my belt um but all that time I It wasn't like I had a burning story to tell or I harboured great ambition to write my own book, but it got to a point where I thought, look, I'm either going to bite the bullet and try and see if I can do this. So it was more kind of a practically writing exercise. Can I write a novel um, that I set myself to do? Um, I do remember it, it seems so obvious now that I work as a writer because I love writing. Like I really enjoy the process and I think you need to enjoy the process because you spend your whole life all day, every day doing it. So you really, it's something you really need to enjoy the nuts and bolts level of writing. But I remember when I was a kid at school, I always loved creative writing. It just never occurred to me that that was a real job, that that's what somebody could do. And I remember reading, I mean, I must have, I must have really been into writing though, because I remember reading a magazine in a news agents one day on writing and it was aimed at sort of teenagers or kids. 
And there was a quote in there, a fabulous interview with John Marsden, that brilliant author. And he said, if you're a writer, you are, you're never going to be able to leave it alone. Like you just won't, there's nothing else you would rather do. And I put down the magazine and I thought, well, I'm not a writer. Cause like I can think of a hundred things now as a 16 year old kid that I would rather do than sit down and write something. So I kind of shelved the idea for a long time. Um, but yeah, I have eventually come back around to, I just, I do just really enjoy it. So you're now in that position that I'm in, uh, where uh, your publisher will be coming around soon, because you know, this is done and dusted for them, um, <laughs> and talking about the next thing. Uh, does that terrify you, or have you already got something running? What's the, what's the deal? Like Because you, know, you put so much into one book, and then, they, then there's a kind of expectation of, come on, do it again. Yeah, I don't. I probably should feel more daunted by that. Um, I should probably get to work on that. <laughs> no, what are we I doing here in this podcast? That's right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like somebody else in the room's got a book due before me. <laughs> um, no, I have. I've got an idea actually that I'm itching to get started on for the next one, and I've made a lot of notes, and I'm putting a tentative toe in the water. So it's yeah. I wouldn't go as far to say it's underway, but yeah, there's. Yeah, I've got some ideas. That's wonderful. This book is going to be huge. We are so happy that uh, that you've come in and talked to us about it. It's been such a long ride for the both of us getting to this point. It has, it um, has. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for making the time to come and talk to thank us. Thank you for having me. It was so lovely to come in and finally see Booktopia, so thank you. <laughs> it was our pleasure. And you can get hold of the Van Apple Girls are gone at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.